All right, welcome back. Masari Happy Hour, Episode 3. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to kick it off with a disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not reflect any endorsements or any opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available on our website. I'm going to go ahead and share that as we kind of kick off the general discussion. Um, we just came back from close to a week-long off-site in Nashville, and we wanted to start the show with kind of general takeaways. I think it was a pretty exciting experience for most of us being remote. Um, some uh, some U.S. employees, a few international, um, and we kind of got to, to join up for the first time and and meet each other in person without beating a dead horse. I think I had three main takeaways. One, just the the level of of talent um, from individual to individual was. I think what you would imagine uh, from a company like Masari, we had some really interesting breakout sessions. I personally am only in marketing, but I can only imagine um, what our data science team and research team had uh, amongst themselves. And kind of the last main takeaway was just how much we really have coming down the pipeline uh, on Masari's roadmap. So I think we, we've got some exciting exciting things happening, more tools, more announcements to come um, pre-mainnet. So keep your eyes peeled on the Masari team. We're, we're definitely working during, during this market, um, and I think everybody's super stoked. So with that, we're going to kick it off with Web3 Social. Dustin recently wrote a piece on um, the open social map which I can link as well, um, kind of pitching uh, a, a decentralized social network, much much different from obviously what we're using now with with Twitter. So w- without further ado, Dustin, kick us off. Sure, appreciate it, Doug. Um, before we just jump in there, right, like Doug, um, you know, next time we we'll just have you sing, you know, because your voice is beautiful. But um, just to kill off like open social, you know, like, it really is like a fundamental different way of thinking about um, kind of how we just architect, not just like social platforms, but like like just the way we work too. It's not just media or any of this stuff. Um, like I, th- I think I had a line in there that I kind of liked actually. It was like, um, like crypto isn't just like a financial tool, right? We've, we've got all got excited about DeFi. We've got excited about all these kind of like, you know, number go up type of situations. Uh, but like, you know, really at its heart of it, it's kind of like this social organizational tool, right? It's how we organize capital. It's how we like organize, um, you know, work, right? Like where DAOs are paying out people right now. And what we're really missing is that kind of that, that tool that natively really brings, um, you know, users on the blockchain, you know, into these DAOs, right? Like, you know, DAO structures right now kind of sitting offline. It's very disparate. It's in discords. It's in Twitter. Uh, you know, it's, it's in Governor, right, the Masori product. It's in Tally. It's in Boardroom. It's all these other stuff, right? Um, we don't really have that really native way to kind of, like, identify social organizations. Um, and, that, and that's what Lens is going to do, right? I mean, Lens has, like, this very open 
you know, framework for defining, you know, what they're going to call is like an open social graph. Um, you think what, I mean, that's kind of a complex term, right? All that really means is like, who knows who, who's posting what content, right? Kind of that history between, between your, like your profile, right? Uh, so once that's all built out, you've got like a whole, a whole graph of people to find out. Um, that's how you can do some really cool thing, not just on the DAO space and, and work, but like also from, you know, linking back into DeFi as well. Um, you know, like you, Ave, like, you know, we know Lynch is coming out of Ave, um, which, you know, let me pause, let me pause there for a minute. I, just from a disclosure standpoint, I've got a Ave spread going on. So I'm currently long Ave just from a disclosure standpoint. Uh, but jumping back into it, right. Ave is, you know, building out and, you know, like if you think about Ave, right, the big thing is it's over collateralized lending. It's, we got to put in more money that we can take out. Right. How do we get to that real world? under collateralized lending space, right? Where you can, you know, maybe take out future revenue. Like if you're a DAO, I've got a contract to get paid a hundred grand this year, right? I can take forward future revenue because all that's only going to be on chain, right? We've got payment streaming with, um, oh, I forgot about it. Somebody will jump in, uh, remind me. But, um, you know, you, you can define all the, like the future flows of revenue, just not just DAOs, but even like from creators and stuff like this. Um, so to me, it's just a really interesting way to kind of re-architect how like, you know, one that we just do social, but just, you know, take it to a next level of how we kind of like architect um, almost society level stuff at the same time. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll jump in here and add some notes uh, to follow up on what Dustin was saying. Uh, if you if you really zoom out and think about like these credit networks and just really any sort of like uh, social coordination, it gets down. Uh, to these social graphs and for basically all of history we've had these closed social graphs uh, that are, are gate kept and for the first time ever like we're building something out on chain that's accessible and viewable by anyone in the world um, and what really excites me about this is just the amount of innovation that we're going to see coming out of this so the a really difficult thing with um, like social media platforms is you know you have to bootstrap those network effects, um, make them sticky, and really now um, like with Lens launching, you know we're we're going to see a couple of these like one to two base layer social graphs built out, but then the amount of applications and stuff that you can build composably on top of that, um, I think is just going to be. Um, enormous and really going to be like what drives the next uh, big source of innovation within this space and more broadly within like our existing physical world. And I think we should just probably note that Dustin, your post is out before Vitalik's, right? So he probably can like copy you on, on that one. <laughs> um, that's you know, what, what do we think? What happened? Yeah. What do we think about the concept of soul-bound NFTs? I know uh, Vitalik mentioned that, and that, that goes into sort of the, the general theme we're talking about here. I think, actually, it gets really, really kind of interesting here if you almost just just combine it all, right? So, you know, you have this social aspect, and those could be transferable NFTs, but part of it could be soul-bound NFTs. But I really, really like about the idea of that is, like, locking in social collateral. Right. So I know, Dustin, you had mentioned that Ave, you know, by nature of crypto, so people don't run away with the money, we have to use over collateralized lending. Right. But what if as these social graphs grow, as you have a lot of soul bound NFTs in your social graph, right, you have like a personal social collateral 
built up on this address such that you don't want to tarnish that. And I get that it makes it kind of difficult. So how do you like measure the value of this social collateral? That's, you know, going to be a big challenge for somebody to solve, but perhaps I could borrow a hundred dollars against $60 and then $70 of social collateral, right? Like you can start to bring these things together and the dynamic growth and the identity that forms with your digital wallet, your like digital sovereign identity that begins to unlock a whole field of new possibilities, right? You get this marriage where it's social, but that social becomes financial the same way now, like maybe a banker just likes you and you, you can get a better loan because of that social thing. I think that is important. And I think that's something that we haven't been able to tap into crypto. And we're just, we're so, so early on this whole evolution of the idea. I definitely think that's like where like you have like the biggest impact is right where you get that kind of like under collateralized lending, you know, really kind of bring in your, when we say social collateral, right? That's like your brand image, right? If a, if a company wants to borrow against kind of essentially their reputation, right? Um, the one thing is like when I, as I think through this though, I don't know if it's like purely reputation scores, right? That it's going to be the thing that we were going off of. Like to me, like, you know, that's what we used to do, right? We had, like, that's, we just resorted to like, Mike's a good guy, you know, like, let's give him a hundred bucks. But like, now, like, if you got all the payments on chain, right? Superfluid is the protocol I, I forgot about earlier. But like, if you've got, you basically like, you got your salary on chain. Let's say you got your stupid little side gig on chain, right? And that's we can define out kind of your future cash flows, and we can now discount that back to kind of a sort of a present value, sort of likelihood of one of you getting that, and like you can also use basically future payments as your collateral. Uh, so whether it's Masari and there all the subscriptions are on chain, right? borrowing against kind of like, okay, expected future revenue growth and stuff like that. Um, I think you're going to want really everything on chain and saying like, all right, this is the amount of money I've got coming in is what I can borrow against. Or else you kind of get into these funky systems and people are trying to play these game theoretic, uh, like schemes essentially around reputation, trying to game some sort of algorithm. So my, my question going off of this stuff is, do you guys see, um, kind of like the source of these under collateralized loans and, and capital uh, payments, do you see that coming from a group of people um, or like on an individual peer to peer basis? So in, in terms of like the group, let's say um, you want to, you have an idea for uh, a side business and you want to put the, the future um, cash flows up as collateral for that. Are you going to be presenting that to, um, like a small group that's managing um, a certain amount like on chain or is it just going to be if you post it up for anyone to see uh, that request and someone can come fill it on like a peer-to-peer basis i think it becomes competitive right like right now i don't know if anybody's ever gotten bored and like filled out a mortgage calculator or something i made that mistake once put in my email and i got seven, eight, 90 offers from all these different mortgage companies trying to rip me off, right? Well, imagine that this becomes a competition space, right? We talk about how interoperable these social graphs are, right? Like one protocol, one team might build the social graph, more teams might build like the front end on top of that, other teams build an algorithm layer and everybody tries to compete to be the highest value add. Now take that to the lending that's a portion of it, right? It's like there will be different protocols that analyze the behaviors and classify you. And they say, hey, like 
I think I can assign scores of reputability. I think I can assign scores of how much you should be able to borrow against. And then they might like try to provide that service to Ave, right? Ave might work with one team for a while, but then all of a sudden, everybody that this team says is of good credit starts to default. So there, Ave is going to say, all right, we're not using your Oracle anymore. We're not using your social credit Oracle anymore or something like that. We're going to use these other people. So I think it opens a competition space. Like that's something that can be intellectually outsourced to, to the groups of people who want to put their name to these scores and these rankings. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I actually kind of agree with a lot of what you're saying right there. That's because it does come very competitive. Everyone's competing at the, essentially the algorithm layer to say, like, okay, who's, who's this Mikey guy and should we fund his OnlyFans? I don't know. Um, but, but uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, you got you to gotta figure out what's, what's going on here. And um, I, I do think, like, there's gonna, it's really hard to give a definitive answer and say that you're going to have, you know, this, this, or that. Um, but, it's always going to be a blend of both. Are you going to have kind of the Ave very traditional, like let's borrow against um, just future revenues. You can have like certain things, like you're not going to have subscribers. You're not going to have like future revenues you can borrow against. You're going to have to have like, okay, Mike's a good guy. We've, you know, we can see a little bit about Mike and kind of determine something. Um, so we, I don't know. We can, I, it'd be interesting to see how it all plays out. It's really hard to sit here right now and say like, this is how exactly everything's going to scale out. Cause you get this, and you get into a hyper competitive situation or with like, you know, you can get three dudes and just know how to code and go find something. Um, and they can build a whole business around that, right? Just with on open social data. Dustin, you got to disclose your OnlyFans before we move forward as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a more simple question for Dustin here. And your opening, opening statement, um, you highlighted kind of a, a, an old world web two problem in cold starting and acquiring new users. And that kind of leads into um, different ways to monetize. Do you think that these monetization models that, um, that Lens is, is introducing are going to be enough for the platform to, to be successful enough for it to have staying power? That's interesting. There's almost there's two questions there, right? It's like, does it have staying power after the fact? All right, obviously kind of hard to answer without seeing a product, right? Um, but does it get a bunch of users, basically from token incentives or whether it's like these interesting revenue models? 100%, right? I mean, we've, we've clearly just proven we can get them half a million users overnight, basically saying like, okay, here's, our, here's some token incentives. Um, so I don't think there's going to be any shortage of that. And I definitely think we're going to probably do some experimenting that's probably not exactly uh, sustainable um, it, when it comes to token incentives. So I, I do think that's going to, it's just going to be a really powerful concept, particularly going into kind of this economic, like, I don't know if you call it recession or not, but like if you got like a down economic period, people, you know, hiring freezes, all this kind of stuff, you're going to be looking for ways to make money, right? So if you find that like, Oh, there's some of the open social stuff I can get paid for my my post and stuff. Like that's a driver, right? Uh, these token incentives you layer that on, that's another driver. Um, like whether it has staying power, like that's that's where we can kind of like. To me, it just becomes a function of like how iterable it is, right? So if you've got open social data, you've got everyone can compete around that um, and launch the token, kind of incentivize users, and not just even build full on you know social applications the way we think of them today. Like Twitter owns the data. 
algorithm, presentation layer, everything, right? It's someone can compete and just like, okay, this is a cool feature. And someone takes that and puts it back into um, one of their front end apps, right? So there's different ways to create all sorts of new stuff, new interesting things that I think is definitely going to appeal to people, right? Uh, like existing users of Twitter and stuff, even just from a, a viewing standpoint. Two parts here. Um, do you guys think that this is more effective at the application level to build on top of an existing layer one or um, something like that DSO is doing uh, to kind of create their own whole chain for a social network? Um, and then going off of that, is this like a winner takes all, um, winner takes most kind of scenario where we only have one, two, three social graphs? Um, or, I mean, do you guys think that the amount of social graphs will just explode? All right, well, those are two really big questions, Chase. So we're going to do one by one and probably forget about the second one. So remind me if we come, if we come back to the second one. Um, so the, the first one was, sorry, totally lost. What was the first one? What was the first one? <laughs> for, 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 first one is um, application level versus yes. uh, network level social graphs. I, all right, so you think about what we were just talking. I mean, most of this discussion was all basically around finances, right? It was like, oh, we want to do undercollateralized lending. We want to do um, these interesting payment networks and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, if you're on your own network and you don't have DeFi contracts, you don't have like these primitives, Aave, Uniswap, et cetera, that are built out, battle-tested, that's a really hard place. You're going you're gonna, to rebuild all social and then rebuild all of DeFi. Like if we're saying a lot of the value is almost in a financial aspect, you kind of need it kind of sitting together, playing nice with each other, right? So that's where it kind of like almost sits at this application layer. Uh, so I, I do think it it's hard to say like, okay, this is definitely wins or doesn't win, but like, from the, if we believe financial is like the number one thing these social graphs are basically kind of competing on, then I do see it being kind of hard for like isolated chains that are just doing social and essentially just recreating the same social. But like, hey, you own your data and those kind of things. Those are really loose arguments. Money is a very hard argument that really brings in users. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I think just kind of like the name of, of social... Um, everyone kind of just jumps to it as a replacement for our Web2 social media platforms. But going back mm -hmm. to what you highlighted at the beginning, like this is what underpins just everything going forward. Um, so really the sky's the limit at the application level, I think. Yeah. And I think that is an interesting question there too, though, of like, I think this is your second question. I remembered it this time of, you know, like, do we have multiple... Uh, social graphs, essentially, you know, on the same network. And I think that's actually kind of tough. I think it does kind of, it is kind of, it can't just fork it. This isn't a Uniswap. This isn't an Aave. This isn't whatever, right? Because once you've got, it requires on, like, users to click buttons, right? You can't fork users clicking buttons. Like, it means for you to follow all this kind of stuff. For, like, if Mike wants to follow me or we want to follow Mike's OnlyFans, like, that requires us to click buttons and, um, like actually go take action. So then now we're holding the follow entities and all this kind of stuff to where you can't just fork that kind of thing. Uh, so I do think it becomes like kind of competitive and kind of like calcifies to a degree because uh, the history matters, like the comment history, all because if we're talking about reputations, all this kind of stuff, that's a history function. That's a time function. 
So it, I do think it actually kind of gets really hard to compete with one, almost one big social graph, right? Beautiful. Uh, let's roll into the next here. So Mike, uh, you brought up a point when we were kind of discussing amongst ourselves on the topic of moats and crypto uh, and to frame that, which L1s and protocols have defensible positions versus which may be more suited to be a public good. you want to want to jump into that topic? Yeah, definitely. I think first I'll, I'll set the scene here a little bit, right? So we all know a moat is essentially like how well can you defend your position? If I'm a DEX, how well can I keep other DEXs from stealing my volume? If I'm a lending market, how well can I keep other lending markets from stealing my that? If I'm an L1, it's users, right? And then using crypto native lingo, it's how hard are you to fork, right? How quickly can someone fork the code and spin up a competitive copy of you? And I want to make it clear that just to set the tone of this, this is a much more long time frame, right? There's a lot of noise in crypto. There's a lot of speculation in crypto. And price does not equal a moat, right? Like if a protocol is worth $60 billion, it doesn't mean they have a moat or not, right? And then the same thing is having a moat doesn't make you good. You can build a moat around bad things too. Like I can build a moat around selling really, really ugly shoes. I'm, I'm the best at it. I've got all the resources to make the ugliest shoes in the world. No one can copy me, but there's no value accrual there, right? So I think it's important to think on two things, the moat and then does value accrue behind that moat. And in my opinion, I think you have to look for things that can't be forked. So I, I think using yearn is one of my favorite examples. Let's say I fork the yearn code right now. What I cannot fork is the yearn brain power, right? They've built a pretty good flywheel model of essentially utilizing the Wi-Fi token as a financial asset to pay out their contributors, and then those contributors know that working with urine gets them a revenue share from those contracts. So I might fork urine on Monday, but when they launch that new strategy on Friday, I'm already behind. Our maker, where you're just talking about social and reputation, maker is the only major, you know, in my opinion, crypto protocol that is hyper decentralized, but also they get to communicate with real world banks. Like, like maker has given loans to banks that reputation is something that you can't fork, right? So I think that, you know, we get lost in the, in the source of the noise a lot, and people might assume that a high-volume DEX has a moat, but in my opinion, most DEXs don't have moats. Like, why, why would I use a DEX that accrues value to a token? Why wouldn't someone just launch a DEX that has bare minimum fees to attract, you know, the liquidity needed to get the users, right? So in my opinion, that's more of a public good than a moat. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think and like where you guys think people think has a moat that doesn't have a moat or vice versa. I think at the application layer, <clears throat> like you were saying, you can definitely um, try to build moats, but there becomes sort of a flywheel with development and users. Um, I think that just bubbles up even more to the L1 layer. I mean, Ethereum is the most forked protocol. Everyone just forks Geth and starts their own blockchain, but all of the value keeps accruing because the Ethereum development base just keeps powering on new um, applications and implementations and improvements on, on the base layer, and it just makes Ethereum block space the most, most valuable commodity uh, in sort of the broader ecosystem. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an open question right now. 
Yeah, I'm going to put the L1 thing to the side, right? Because I think that's actually pretty, it's kind of hard to fork the L1 side. But the application layer, I'm like a little bit more, I guess, bearish on the defensibility of, let's say, a DEX or Ave and stuff like that, right? Because you can always incentivize liquidity and if it functions the same. Like, it just, it's kind of tough. Like there are some brand aspects that, that definitely plays a bet. The, the one thing I do actually think is like, like heavily defensible is, is stable coins, right? Like you can't just fork maker and say like, okay, great, we're going to print 10 billion of die, and then we're also going to go shove it into every single useful application, right? Whether it's uh, Ave compound, you know, you name it, right? Um, you can't like just incentivize liquidity across an entire ecosystem like that in your stable coin. Like we've we've probably seen some recent projects kind of fail at doing that. Um, so that to me is like the most significant thing that I can't, I don't think you can really fork over a long period of time. Do you That's think aggregators can destroy the moat of brands? So let, like I like to use Dex aggregators, say you like to use one inch or zapper to do some trades. And then it almost, it doesn't matter if like, so I personally, you know, the balancer, like I don't, I don't use them a lot. It's not a brand I personally think of a lot, but if I get routed through it, balancer is getting that volume. So like there's also an abstraction, right? Like you can build that layer on top that almost makes branding irrelevant to, to the consumer side. I mean, I'm going to be honest, like all this stuff that we're using on chain, like we probably just shouldn't be using as regular day-to-day -day users. Like we're just like, this is infrastructure that we just act, happen to have a UI to, right? Um, so it's just like t thinking about it from a consumer standpoint and, and uh, from a defensibility mode, like that's kind of tough. It's really kind of like, it's all numbers, right? It's all a clear, like I've got the most liquidity. I can sh offer the cheapest rates. Like Uniswap, by far the most efficient decks. And if we're, if we abide by kind of the, the guidelines, you know, the licensing of, on their code, right? No one can fork it, I mean, more or less. Um, so yeah, I mean, t it, it, Uniswap is just most, most efficient, right? So it's kind of the brain power behind the team and stuff like that. But in general, like, it's just kind of honestly kind of ironic to even think about it from a, a user standpoint of, of users, you know what I'm saying? I think too, um, you know, as, as the space continues to mature and grow, the ones that really get the established integrations with like real world businesses and um, use cases, that's going to be a moat of itself almost. Um, choosing which ones they want to plug into, you know, a lot of these standard businesses, um, they, they like to choose a stack and stick with it, and they'll do a lot of research going into that decision. Um, but so I, I think as the space grows, that the stickiness uh, will become more apparent. Um, and right now, you know, we're just so early in like the DeFi and crypto life cycles to really understand um, what will stick. Uh, and then just like one other thing to bring up is the idea of, of these treasuries and uh, resources. You could also um, add like protocol controlled value underneath that. Um, obviously, like a lot of these protocols are just going to be uh, incentivizing users and depleting their treasury um, over time in, in order to stay relevant. Um, but I think the ones that can, can bootstrap and keep themselves afloat more um, just easily have such a natural advantage. Do, do we think moats only get bigger in the bear markets because folks who have liquidity and funds right now are able to continue to grow while others are in sort of survival mode? So these moats only get bigger as we go through more cycles? 
I think like the the fundamentals play a, a lot bigger of a role. Uh, you see that curve is is losing a lot of TVL um, and, and trading volume. Like Dustin said, is moving over to a more efficient platform on Uni V three, um, and kind of when like all the incentives and inorganic inorganic usage starts to dry up, um, like you see the the migration over towards uh, more organic sustainable uses organic usage has popped up pretty relevantly with the ust collapse right like that was a pretty inorganic case for the thing and you just talked about how uniswap has the organic users right because they don't need to run these wild incentive programs or have the ve lockup model of curve and you know dustin this actually ties back to decentralized social right like that's a organic demand for these things we know people love the social product do you think maybe that's kind of the key that you know i we we love the dgens and i i i love it but a lot of this is just leverage moving token a to token b and wrapping it to a dot c dot whatever right what are what are some of the like more organic things you think we can build out here or is just being organic a moat like organic DeFi. um I mean, I think Uni B3 Maker are probably the two like shining examples of like just organic DeFi. Um, like if you if you plot out kind of like Uni B3 or just total Uni um, liquidity across time and then curve, right? You just kind of see like during that that huge bull run that we essentially had from like let's call it from July of last year to right about roughly now, and we had this huge swell of DeFi TVL. Uh, like Uni, like surprisingly pretty flat, right? from a stablecoin perspective. And then it's all just, everything just goes into curve, right? So it's like kind of, we saw like a lot of leverage just get built up into what we traditionally thought was like kind of this organic liquidity and stuff. Um, so, but I just, I don't know. I don't really, I don't know if I really care to be honest, because like we're, we're in this experiment stage to where like, like, of course we're experimenting with leverage. We're experimenting with all these different little things. And like, we want to say like, oh, it's coming down all this kind of stuff and it's organic versus inorganic. Um, but it's just all experiments, right? We're building huge financial infrastructure um, into where we kind of just need to experiment. Like you're going to need to experiment with leverage, right? You're going to need to see how these kind of systems ebb and flow. Um, so like the organic thing is just going to grow steadily over time and the inorganic is just, it's going to come into protocols and come out of the protocols ebb and flow. But does that mean the protocol like necessarily is bad? Did it serve this particular function at this point in time for leverage? Like probably not, right? It, it could have a very viable use case, um, you know, later down the line. It doesn't mean like just because we had leverage built up into a system right now that a protocol necessarily is bad. It's just tokens following money incentives. So. Unless it all collapses, right? Then it's bad. Then I'm going to retract yeah. my, stop, my statements and it's all bad. Yeah, so what, one of the kind of catch-all statements that I use a lot, and I hear other people use a lot, it just circles the spaces, right? The fees go to zero, essentially, right? That it's really, really hard to be rent-seeking in open industry and, and, like, decentralized access to infrastructure. And Chase, you had a really good piece highlighting this where you looked at the uh, you looked at the, the financial services, like these TradFi providers, and I believe the number is, like, they make $5.5 trillion a year. And it was kind of interesting. You framed that instead of saying that this is profit and this is a value add, you kind of made the bold claim like 
this is a tax on society, actually, right? This is a friction of our current system that's being extracted. So I don't know, maybe you, you just kind of want to explore that idea of like fees going to zero might make us think, oh, these tokens all become worthless and stuff like that. But how do you see actually more value being unlocked by fees going to zero? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where the value is actually going to accrue um, in, in terms of the stack here. Um, maybe that just all sinks down to like a layer one. Maybe it just stays in the consumer's pockets. Um, but it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot more recently in that, you know, we're building these open networks um, to be public goods in a sense. And um, like having these, these rent-seeking uh, protocols sitting on top of it, like that's just, <laughs> it's not really sustainable um, if we don't necessarily need them. Um, because, you know, you deploy the code once and it's sitting out there. Um, <clears throat> anyone can fork it and do something without a fee. Uh, but, you know, like really flipping it on its head and approaching something like that uh, and thinking of it as an expense versus revenue for a specific sector. Um, I'm a believer that, you know, financial services is going to uh, become like embedded into just about every other industry um, that we have on planet Earth. Uh, you already see this with a bunch of the fintechs pivoting to embedded business models using open APIs and stuff. And DeFi is, in my opinion, just kind of like the culmination of that. Um, and it, it just doesn't really seem right to have, uh, if, if it's embedded to all these things, to necessarily have a standalone sector um, still just sucking a lot of value out of, out of people's pockets if the name of the game is capital efficiency. Um, at the end of the day. Chase, what were those numbers again? It was $5 trillion or something like that a year? Yeah, so McKinsey did some sort of uh, study, uh, Doug. I, I think there might be a image in one of my tweet threads uh, recently, if you want to throw it on the bookmark. Um, but they, they created like this chart that showed um, all the different types of financial service providers um, and all of um, kind of like the rent-seeking fees and intermediation fees that they take um, for facilitating the financial system, and it added up to five point five trillion dollars. And you know, we we talk about like what's the total addressable market cap of uh, DeFi. A lot of people will benchmark it to banks and what whatnot. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go about it because you know it's it's going to be more so. Um, us removing all of these inefficiencies and not necessarily extracting them out from the system to begin with. Yeah, and I think we in crypto, I think, tend to say this could go all the way to whatever that $5.5 trillion number, and then people in finance say, oh, there's no way you're going to get rid of any of that. These systems have been built up over time and battle-tested, and there's uh, a real service you're paying for here. But I think the reality is probably somewhere in the middle, it, even if if I can actually address, you know, 10, 20% of that market, that's, that's enormous, um, just on an annual basis, not, not even thinking about sort of ongoing, if you were to think about that as sort of a, a revenue stream. So, you know, I think, and this is where I get frustrated coming from traditional finance and then hearing traditional finance folks kind of laugh when DeFi numbers go down or crypto, uh, you know, market cap goes down. It's, you know, they're missing all of the potential efficiencies we could be weeding out 
and just how how big this market is that we can actually improve things with. Do you think here's kind of an an open wider question? So say we take that down to zero, right? And this five point five trillion is all of a sudden gone. Does the outcome of this create strange hyper financialization in other places, or does it de-financialize like the greater system, right? Like I could see a world where now that there's five point five free trillion extra dollars essentially not being rent seeked, does that get pumped? into decentralized social and you know it's good and and associating value with collaboration will have good outcomes but you know sometimes i think maybe i shouldn't look at the numbers on the chart so much and it's a little scary thought to talk about like charts on numbers relative to people or do you think like you almost can get to an idyllic world where hey it's just it's it costs less to be a human now right you don't have to pay so many fees you don't have to pay so much rent to exist as a person and you kind of get back to a less financialized outcome. Like, it's a question too big to know, like, the full answer to, but I'm just curious to hear everybody's thoughts. I think a little bit of both. Um, so on the first point about, you know, um, like, taking fees down and it costing less to be live a, a normal standard of living life, um, that's kind of, like, the long-term outcome of technological innovation. Um, is to create more efficiencies, more people can enjoy the same level uh, standard of living. Um, so in that sense, I agree that, you know, there will be less financialization. But if you look at what an NFT is and the fact that you can wrap any unique item in a digital wrapper, uh, it's going to be the same thing as uh, kind of like the financialization of everything in the traditional financial world. Um, and <laughs> like you're going to be able to bet on so many different things that have just not been possible before. Uh, you, you, we're in like the very early stages of seeing this um, be leveraged by like, the creator uh, economy and community. But I think once you start to wrap like uh, mortgages in real world assets as NFTs as well, um, like we're going to unlock a huge Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I just agree with Chase. Um, so, I mean, it's like, it becomes less financialized in the sense that we're not going to have, like, these big banks that need to pay billions of dollars, essentially, regulatory costs. Because, I don't, you know, the 5.5 trillion number, I'd, I'd be wondering, like, how much of that is, like, just regulation uh, of deep cost. But, like, it also becomes more financialized in the sense of, you know, everything we're seeing is going to be kind of this gamified thing, uh, sort of financialized. Uh, like, you think, like, I mean, what is a bank even doing anyway, right? It's taking in deposits and reallocating the capital cost, you know, lending and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, in DeFi land, it's it's just the user takes their money and just LPs it directly or just takes it and deposits it directly into Aave, right? So, you're like, you're going to cut down um, all of the, essentially all the bloated costs, right? Like, you think of what an FIS and a FISERV do, right? They make billions of dollars. They're just running transactions. Well, Ethereum covers that, right? So, we've kind of, we're going to, take away kind of like almost this big financial pillar of the sector uh, but we're going to transfer that back down into the user level so like the user's lives I think it's more financialized to a degree but I don't yeah think, I think yeah go ahead then yeah. no no so you know DeFi you are essentially the bank I, I just wonder how many people are willing to be the bank right and and we're at sort of the forefront right now so you have I think 
the most sort of degen kind of people in, in all these DeFi protocols and at the bleeding edge of willing to be able to take risks, but the majority of people are not going to be the ones who, who want to play around DeFi games and Ponzi-nomics and all of that stuff. It's going to be the real world um, applicable use cases like mortgages and things like that that actually abstract away financial services um, you know, on top of just like the obvious use cases like DEXs and borrowing and lending and things like that. Yeah, I mean, this is where, like, the bankless guys are going to be like, okay, jump up and down and get all excited, right? Because this, I mean, their DeFi mullet thing is really not, I kind of agree with, right? So, like, but I don't think you can rent this track kind of to what we've been talking about on top of Aave, and, and it's just going to be too competitive. Like, I think, like, just take the Apple Notes app. That's free. One of my favorite Note apps. Uh, we went through this whole shebang of, like, trying out fancy Note apps, but now, you know, me and a lot of other people I know just kind of use Apple Notes, right? It's just going to be, like, this free layer of like kind of just standard applications that you can use. And all they'll do is like, there'll be like another protocol in my opinion that just routes is like, okay, we're going to basically deposit an Aave, but it's going to dress it up in something that's a little bit more user-friendly and approachable. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but honestly, I'm, I'm getting really, really excited and, and addicted to the thought of like what the, uh, what the decentralized social, what these social graphs kind of do. Do you think you could see an evolution of like the concept of banking where now part of the social graph is like a hive mind aspect to banking where it's not even a DAO or it's not even like a a bank that goes on chain, but it's all this value has kind of congregated and it's essentially created a pseudo bank. And there's now this layer where people come on top and it follows the, and I, this is all very amorphous wording because it's so far out. But do you think like, the hive mind of social media as soon as it is at the same layer of the financial instruments? Do you think that hive mind is what recreates the traditional idea of banking, what recreates the traditional idea of mortgages? Like, could you get some crazy things going on in there? Uh, I've thought about this a bit, and what I've kind of settled on is everything you've just described is essentially the role that the credit union plays. where it's a bunch of people uh, more distributed putting their capital together and you see it in more of like these localized smaller communities and if anything uh, DeFi has shown us you know you can break all of this down to uh, very tiny levels like the individuals are now the banks and just like all uh, capitalist systems like there's just going to be bundling and rebundling unbundling, rebundle. Um, so I, I think it's inevitable for people to kind of form these these social groups um, and essentially uh, be like their own little mini hedge fund credit unions of sorts. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Almost to get like philosophical with it, right? What is, what is like a, a bank even doing anyway? Um, they're taking in the society's money and then kind of allocating it out and saying like, all right, society, humanity, what's important and where can you make money? Well, <laughs> you know, like that they're making kind of the decisions for humanity on saying like, okay, this is the most productive thing for humanity. Well, now you kind of decentralize this and you kind of the Mike's crazy ideas, right? Now, like it gets very individualistic. You're going to have like small pods of kind of like people voting with their capital of like, this is the most interesting thing to me. This is the most like, um, <laughs> this is the most like, you know, thing I think thing is going to produce society forward, right? Because you're betting on this long-term, uh, basic capital appreciation. That's what the individual decisions are going to be. 
So it just comes like turns it turns like society into this giant voting machine uh, for what they think is going to be valuable in the future. All right, let's shift really quick. We had um, in the middle of the month a, a one eighty shift here. Tom dropped a a note after Coinbase announced their their earnings report. Um, some FUD going on, and, and shortly thereafter, Chase followed up with a pretty huge announcement um, from Coinbase and kind of a, a strategic shift of sorts. So, Tom, I'll throw it to you, and let's talk yeah. about what, what Coinbase is doing. I, I got your transition. Uh, Coinbase cannot be charging 1% transaction fees forever. Transaction fees will be going closer to zero. So, um, But despite their really favorable uh, revenue capture at the moment, um, <laughs> folks were concerned because there was a disclosure about if Coinbase were to go into bankruptcy, um, user funds could potentially be at risk. So the first piece of that is just looking through the financial statements. Coinbase is nowhere near close to bankruptcy. They have more, double the assets um, of it, just in cash alone uh, versus their debt. So six billion in cash versus three trillion in debt or three billion in debt. Um, and all of their ongoing actual expenses uh, are a lot of them are variable and could be cut in sort of a downturn. So you know just looking at the actual data, it's pretty hard to see Coinbase going to bankruptcy. Um, anytime that the sort of near term unless crypto is essentially gone um, forever. So I uh, just that part I thought was important. Um, and, and if you look at the actual sort of financial statements um, for Coinbase, the numbers on the paper don't even capture the enormous VC book that they have. And it's hard to value things when the market's down as much as it is. But a few equity analysts have put that value of that book alone at 6 to $17 billion. So that's basically the market cap of the company right now. So overall, Coinbase is in a fine financial position. Um, the broader problem is if they were eventually to go into bankruptcy, uh, you know, your funds or whoever's funds are on Coinbase could still potentially be at risk. And I think they're working on potential solutions in the future to kind of, um, you know, move away from that model. And I think there's some potential regulation coming in that vein as well. The Biden administration uh, issued some potential executive orders and things along those lines. So I think that's going to be an open question for them going forward. But, um, you know, Coinbase is one of the most innovative teams and we know where they're thinking about this stuff just from sort of the, the cadence and discussion they had. And Chase had a piece out there that actually talked about some of the new things they're thinking about doing and, and adding, um, you know, over the past few weeks. So I'll turn it over to you, Chase. Yeah. I mean, my, my biggest takeaway from looking into this stuff is, you know, all, all of the reaction around uh, like the quarterly earnings is just <laughs> really overblown. Um, people are, are bringing up like the, the fee models and stuff being unsustainable. And it's like these guys have been around for 10 years and since basically like the dawn of crypto really gaining traction and they have some of the smartest minds. Like you don't think that they're <laughs> thinking ahead um, a few years and looking at where they're going to um, pivot their fundamental business models. Um, and like, like you're beginning to see where that's going to shine through. Uh, so the, the three big, um, Announcements that I reported on were the Coinbase Pay, which is essentially uh, fiat to crypto conversion embedded anywhere from like a MetaMask Web3 wallet, 
even to uh, specific dApps. Um, you know, they're not necessarily trying to play the wallet game anymore um, by now adding in support for uh, direct app integrations within the regular Coinbase app um, and kind of open that up to their giant user base on the app already rather than getting like bootstrapping a whole wallet, which didn't really work. Um, and then the final thing is uh, this liquid staking partnership with Figment. They're working to build out um, Alluvial Finance, which is just going to be a liquid staking derivative platform um, for these larger institutions. So you see them making these announcements that probably have been in the works for a long time. And all of them reflect like a shared theme of focusing on the Web3 business models and how Coinbase can play an essential service in there. So whether it's um, just nailing down on converting fiat to um, crypto and have it be within all of those other customer uh, distribution channels that they don't even necessarily own. Um, as like we've talked about, uh, there aren't a lot of moats right now in crypto. I think that's a great move on their part. Uh, and then with the, the liquid staking partnership, um, I think that that will be a really big industry that will continue to grow as um, some of these larger players get in. And, you know, they want to take advantage of the native yields on these networks, but, you know, they're not really comfortable with a uh, two-week uh, warm-up or cool-down period. And so having a derivative that's pointed directly at them uh, with, with KYC functionality um, will really allow them to get that exposure. Um, and that's going to be something that, you know, it, it really accrues to like a brand value um, rather than just like infinite forks on something like Lido. Yeah. And I think a lot of this, you know, really tanked Coinbase's stock price and, you know, you can see it just go down day after day. Um, and I think it's just been an easy way for retail or the retail crowd and, and sort of traditional finance crowd just to short crypto in general. So instead of, you know, doing it directly with tokens, they could just short Coinbase and take advantage of the opportunity there. Um, it's just been a one-way basically trade down. And the, the valuation at this point, just looking at traditional financial metrics, PE, price to book, all of those is it's sort of hilarious. It's at a point where it's almost valued as like sort of an old world um, industrial stock with like no growth prospects for the future and none of this you know, cash or VC book or any of those things. We're operating in the, you know, uh, most disruptive industry uh, out there right now. So it's it, it's really interesting how um, how the narrative's played on Coinbase and what it's really done to the, the price overall and, and the valuations. Yeah, I agree with that. Like how your, how Coinbase is viewed kind of like by the traditional markets, but like kind of back to like what Chase is, like kind of saying that I think it like it actually has like pretty impactful stuff for just crypto in general. If we ever get this, we all don't go to zero. Right. Um, because it kind of like, they're trying to be this sort of normie use for DeFi, right? Like it embedding some of this Uniswap, Aave, whatever they're going to put in there. Um, it just makes it really approachable. Like, we were kind of talking about this earlier, you know, the, the DeFi mullet or whatever, like, you know, that's a really powerful way for users to like, okay, this is new ways to get yield. This is new ways to kind of use these coins and they can kind of feel like they're, they're using these products versus kind of just trading these coins back and forth on Coinbase because you get a different type of user once you get there. Um, and then in general, like they've also kind of like done this, like that the Coinbase pay thing. Um, 
in, in essence, that's kind of like KYC as a service, right? So where you get DeFi, you know, kind of has this regulation overhang problem that kind of puts a glass ceiling on it. But, you know, something like the Coinbase kind of has a, in, a really good role to play within that kind of conversation, particularly like with the, the, the key thing where they're kind of partitioning keys out, like making it user-friendly, kind of like almost outsourcing the KYC to these DeFi protocols. Um, it, like, I don't know if that's like the vision, like kind of your, your DGEN type normal guy is going to, going to want to have, but like at least definitely plays like a, a strong argument and like framing this up, kind of making it a little bit more regulatory approachable in my opinion. And circling back to uh, the bankruptcy note that Tom brought up and uh, the disclaimer that they, they put on there. Um, about like your your funds could at the end of the day not be your funds. Uh, I don't think that's anything new to our community. Uh, it's obviously the adage, not your keys, not your coins. Um, but <laughs> like that's just going to be something that is going to grab headlines. If you think about it, coming out of an earnings report, that's what gets clicks, that's what gets views. So it, in my mind, it's just not surprising at all to see the negative backlash to something like that. Um, but you know, Coinbase, it, it, you can tell from these new product offerings, like it's not um, their plan to have everyone just be sitting on their platform forever. Um, they want to facilitate the migration that we're going to have into like the Web three DeFi worlds and help people uh, and kind of understand, you know, what these self custody wallets are um, and what their new MPC modeled wallets are. I think it also runs both ways, right? Like. You know, I, I think we all have a, a different level of, of view of anarchy in the crypto ecosystem as a whole, but the world governments and, and, and TradFi isn't going anywhere anytime soon, right? So there's a high value add in being that bridge from the traditional fiat world to the DeFi world. But even say you believe the DeFi world will subsume, you know, that there will also then at some point be a high value bridge from the DeFi world back into the traditional world right so it's it's a two-way bridge and then kind of as you said with these payment rails and, and dustin i really liked what you said about kyc as a service the the moat in air quotes of a bridge like this is that kyc you know like it love it or hate it that makes them a special bridge compared to like a synapse or something like that you know and it's also a bridge to a to something that's not even a blockchain to TradFi, right? So it's very, it's very interesting. And I think, uh, you know, be, being like, obviously I'm internally biased. I'm long crypto. I love the ecosystem. I love the culture, but, uh, but I think there is real value there. Do you think, uh, that this gets copied, right? Like, will it be kind of funny to see uh, Coinbase make this move and then maybe somebody like KuCoin, maybe somebody like Crypto.com goes, well, Crypto.com actually, they have, they have their chain, so there's there's the interesting line there, but does KuCoin or, or Kraken or Gemini, do they say, oh no, we gotta fork this. <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta run this book as well. What do you guys think? I don't think that um, these other centralized exchanges really have um, like the capabilities right now to pull something like this off. Um, as we've seen, like Coinbase is far and away like the largest of these players, um, maybe Binance. Um, 
for uh, like a more a more global approach. Um, but to to think about like KuCoin or someone trying to get involved with this, where you know they're I, I guess they get more of like a degen label of a centralized exchange. Um, I don't really see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, I think Coinbase's brand, to be honest, like, I mean, think about who the Coinbase user is, right? It's your little cousin, it's your brother, right? It's like, it's these people that traditionally aren't, it's it's Tom. Um, you know, like, the users there are the ones that are showing up for, like, kind of this DeFi. I just want to play around, but I want to bring my stuff on MetaMask and, you know, do all this kind of stuff. Like, that's the user that you're trying to grab. That's that your next marginal user into some of these products. Um, whereas kind of these other exchanges are, are pretty much like actually just trading exchanges, right? It's it they have funds and stuff trading on them. They don't have like that that retail user capture, and that that's really important, uh, like for KYC as a service and some of these other kind of sort of things they got going on. So it, it, you can't just fork a brand by just saying, "Hey, we're going to launch this product." I think the other exchanges are very trader focused too. At least the majority of them, and Coinbase really does try to be that normie kind of on ramp for folks. Um, and that's where they'll continue to thrive. But I, I think they also have, they've invested in sort of incubation and, um, you know, VC arm and all these other things that I think a lot of these other ones have, but don't have that commitment to, um, that, that sort of Coinbase feels like it does. What do we think? Good spot to, to wrap for this week. Let's uh, let's shut it down. Um, special thanks to Dustin, Chase, Tom, Mike, um, Chase, Dustin, and Tom on the research team, uh, and Mike on our data engineering team, respectively. We will catch you not this uh, coming Wednesday, but the Wednesday after. If all things go well, it should be in our normally scheduled time slot of 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Keep an eye out for the reminders on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, and thanks for joining. Thank you all. Keep building.